verses 12 through 18. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you wish. Hear the word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath rest, uh, Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on the on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And let us pray together. Father, again, uh, we notice an emphasis on the Sabbath. Uh, we've sung about it already. We're seeking to keep it now. We find other things in this text. We ask you, uh, well, we ask you as we just sung, that you, Holy Spirit, would come upon us, as, it was, as was the prayer of the early church. And as these two men found, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab uh, and so many others, Moses, how dependent they were on the gift of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come, come to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you remember, Moses uh, was now on the mountain a second time. And that time was now drawing to a close with this chapter. It began in chapter uh, 24, verse 12. Let me read that to you. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. And, and in this section of uh, teaching, where the Lord was instructing Moses what he was to instruct the people, we found uh, that the instructions he received was instructions concerning what we call the ceremonial law. Whereas previously, the first uh, ascent on the mountain where he received instructions that he was given to the people had to do uh, with the moral law. He gave the law in chapter 20, received instructions concerning the ceremonial law in 21 through 23, or the moral law, excuse me, and then in 24 through 31, his second ascent, he received instructions concerning the ceremonial law. That's a very crude way of putting it, since if you were to study all of those chapters carefully, you would notice that both aspects, ceremonial and moral, are integrated, and they're always integrated in the theocratic life of Israel, and, they, and so they are in both of those sections. Uh, sections, but it will, it will suffice for the sake of these sermons to notice that since those are the general emphases of those two uh, visits. Here were instructions concerning the tabernacle, the priesthood, and now we see three further things. The builders of the tabernacle, this is all uh, that we find in chapter 31. The, t the Sabbath, surprisingly, perhaps, 
Because you'll say, wait, I thought that was moral law. Why is that in the ceremonial law? Well, I'll, I'll try to explain that. And then third, you just have in verse 18 a general reference to the law itself that was given to Moses. And I want to consider each of those as my three main headings. Uh, once again, uh, seeking to consider not only the significance of these things uh, for, for Israel at the time it was given, but also the spiritual truths uh, which are always true. So we find uh, first the calling of the builders. And we actually have that language. Um, well, I thought we, oh, there it is, verse 2. I've called by name Bezalel. I've called them. So God is calling the builders. And he's instructing Moses to call them on behalf of the Lord to the work. Bezalel and Aholiab, along with all the gifted artisans, God says. And so we learn that Moses saw the pattern of the tabernacle and of the garments on the mountain. He was given the instructions that he was to then give the people. And uh, the people, we also know, were to supply the provisions and to make their offerings. But those who would build were called by name and they were set apart. And I would notice here, I I referenced it as I read it earlier, or at least I said, does that sound familiar? Just as an aside, but it's it's something that's that's impossible not to say something about. That is the similarity to the deacons here. They were filled with the spirit and wisdom. That is exactly what you find in those first deacons. It's just... As I say, impossible to miss that connection. Uh, They were men who were gifted by the Spirit, again, not only in a spiritual manner, but with wisdom, so they were equipped to carry out labor of a temporal sort that uh, others perhaps did not possess the wisdom to do. And so this was a, a service specifically that required these gifts and these graces, which the Lord supplied in calling them. And so we see here... In chapter 31 of Exodus, we see it again in Acts chapter 6. I I had no idea of this connection when I decided to preach my my deacon sermon this week, but but there it is. But but we're taught to see that, uh, that material work on behalf of God, done in the service of the church, is is not ever to be viewed as a lesser work or even as less spiritual, because in, in performing these uh, let us call them material tasks on behalf of God. They required the spirit. They required the spirit. Another thing that we might notice is that even though Moses uh, saw the pattern on the mountain, he had the pattern. He had the very word of God. Uh, I say with reverence, that was not enough. It was not enough to possess the word of God. What What the men needed, what Israel needed, and what we need is something in addition to the word of God. And that is the spirit of God to enliven us and enable us to put into practice the pattern and the rule that God lays down in his word. Otherwise, it will be to us a dead letter that we can never put into practice. That is precisely the principle that is at work here. He supplied the direction in his word, but something more was needed. And that was the spirit of God. There are other spiritual lessons with regard to the calling of the builders. One, uh, one further lesson is this. When God requires a work to be done, he supplies the workers. He doesn't call the church to do something, but then never call a man to fulfill the work. 
Where labor is needed, the Lord sends laborers. This is something that is always true in every age. And I, I especially here think, just by way of illustration, it's, it's true in the day of smaller things. You think, is there anyone who will preach to us? Well, even in the day of lesser things, somehow or another, uh, we, we have a surplus of, of ministerial candidates in the OPC. God is supplying men to preach. But in the days of great things, I think this point is especially illustrated. Again, the point being where labor is required by God, God sends the laborers. And so, for instance, in the New Testament church or in the Reformation or in other periods of revival, what you find is that the demand for preaching was so enormous that it became impossible for one man in a local church to meet the demand. If you think, for instance, of uh, Wittenberg in the time of the Reformation, Luther did some of the preaching, but he wasn't the main preacher. But even the main preacher, I think his name was uh, Bugenhagen, something like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's right. It was something like that at any rate. Um, you can correct me after the service. <laughs> I, maybe I got it. At any rate, uh, same thing in Geneva. You had a whole host of men filling the pulpit because you had three services on Sunday and then one every day of the week. There was this enormous demand for preaching. But what you find is that one man was not called to carry the burden, but God equipped a multitude of preachers. Uh, so that even as we saw uh, this morning, even the deacons were doing preaching in the early church. Because these were days of revival. And God was, uh, God was sending laborers into the field. And we pray that we might see something similar in our own day. God would bring days of revival so he would raise up preachers. Matthew Henry, when God has work to do, he will never want instruments to do it. That's, that's the, the main lesson here. But there's another one, a last one I'll notice with regard to these men. And that is, do you notice... How the Lord and especially the spirit who is equipping and gifting these men is sovereign. He is always sovereign in gifting and equipping men in the church. He distributes. He being the spirit of God, even in the old covenant. We forget so often how active he was in the old covenant. He distributes gifts according to his own will, will just as he does in the new covenant. What we notice here is a diversity of gifts. These were men who had a particular gift that the whole body depended on and which they alone had. Moses, who was equipped to do much, was not equipped for this. He was utterly unable. He lacked the skill to build. Just as we saw earlier, uh, uh, just, just before the, they got to Sinai, Moses praying and Joshua fighting. A diversity of gifts, but one body. It's the same sort of thing here. Or a diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. That's another way to put it. Just using the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is just the sort of thing, as we saw, that led uh, in Acts chapter 6 to the formation of the office of the deacon. The ministers, the apostles, simply couldn't do it all. Neither, nor could the elders. There were also elders in those days. I should have said that this morning. But they needed more laborers, so they called deacons. And so what we see, again, in the diversity, just looking at it from the standpoint of office, but the, the diversity is obviously much greater than that. Uh, and that is that there is not just one man or one type of office, but there is a variety which, uh, by which the spirit meets all of the needs of the body. And he, he meets a variety of needs by dispensing a variety of gifts, by calling one man to one thing and another man to another. Just as he says, uh, and let me just briefly turn there 
since I can't quite quote it by memory, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 is precisely what we see here. From whom the whole body, that is Christ, from Christ the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, that's every member of the body, uniquely gifted by the Spirit, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what the Lord was doing here. Those are the spiritual truths and spiritual lessons. But then you notice this familiar emphasis on the Sabbath. I think this is the third time now it has been uh, referred to by the Lord. And it certainly won't be the last. We saw it before they got to Sinai with reference to the manna. We saw it at Sinai in the giving of the Tenth Commandment. This is the Fourth Commandment, obviously. Now we notice it here. And, and I want to say there was one other time. But it's, it's just something, it's, it's almost a kind of refrain that we find throughout Scripture. Something that's always impressed me. As a Christian uh, converted at the age of 13, I was just always amazed to notice as I read my Bible, the incongruity between what I was reading in the Bible and what I was seeing in the churches. How often the Lord was uh, referring to the Sabbath, the centrality of the Sabbath, and, and somehow or other the church got away from that. This is an amazingly strong emphasis on, in Scripture. It's something, it's not my hobby horse, it's the Lord's. You preach through the Bible and just... Again and again and again, you're going to notice uh, that the Lord is hammering this, some, uh, this, uh, this idea home. Because, do you remember the form in which he gives the command? He tells us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so we notice that he's true to his word, for he is ever reminding us that which we are prone to forget, to keep the Sabbath. In this particular case, it was a timely word. For here he was urging men on in the work of constructing the tabernacle, but not at the expense, he reminds them here, uh, of, of keeping the Sabbath. Matthew Henry again, even tabernacle work must give way to the Sabbath rest. So that's the immediate uh, necessity that, uh, made, uh, that caused the Lord here to remind them again. But this time, and I referred to this earlier, let us observe that he reminds them as part of the giving or the expounding of the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law, again, is that which has to do with the tabernacle and the priesthood. The ceremonial law is that which is abrogated and passed away uh, under a new covenant because Christ is now our great high priest ministering in heaven on our behalf. We have no need of a tabernacle, an earthly tabernacle, or an earthly priesthood. But the Sabbath now is coming to Israel as part of that package. Uh, which, which in one sense you could say, well, that's obvious because the Sabbath is relevant uh, as part of the ceremonial law every bit as much as part of the moral law, since the ceremonial law had to do with the worship of Israel. But there's a temptation here, and some people do this, even admirable, admirable men such as John MacArthur, uh, taking this idea and saying, well, it was just part of the ceremonial law and now it's done away with. So that's where we have to be careful. It is presented as part of the ceremonial law, but not solely. As part of the ceremonial law, let us just notice here that it is presented already as as part of both. It occurred in the giving of the moral law. It occurs in the giving of the ceremonial law. It belongs to both aspects, not to one, not just to the moral, not just to the ceremonial, but the both. And let us let us say that it is most at home in the in the moral law. It belongs as part of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandments. And yet at the same time, in giving the ceremonial law, it, 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 it is at home there as well. 
It very naturally fits in. What do we make of that looking at the ceremonial law or, or the Sabbath rather as part of the ceremonial law? Well, for one thing, we need to recognize that within the context of the old covenant, the Sabbath had both ceremonial and moral aspects. There was a ceremonial component to the Sabbath. And so, uh, speaking very generally, the moral abides, but the ceremonial does not. We recognize that, which would lead us to conclude that the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath do indeed pass away. This is what Gerhardus Voss says, speaking of this very distinction. He says, nor must it be forgotten that the Sabbath was under the Old Testament an integral part of the cycle of feasts. That's part of the ceremonial law. An integral part of the, of the cycle of feasts, which is no longer in force now. From all this, we have been released by the work of Christ, but not from Sabbath as instituted at creation. You see what he's doing there. He's distinguishing ceremonial aspect and moral aspect. The Sabbath as part of the ceremonial law no longer applies. It's part of this cycle of feasts. We are no longer under that aspect of the law, the ceremonial law, as Israel was. But as part of the moral law, the fourth commandment, and even before that at creation, it is something with which abides. Which abides with creational force. But again, it's as, the, as part of the ceremonial law that the, the Lord is here giving the Sabbath. It's that which is being stressed. Ceremonial law, again, not just dealing with the priestly aspects, but that uh, those aspects of the law which uh, applied specifically to Israel. The moral law, law applies to all men alike. Ceremonial law applied to Israel and distinguished Israel from the nations, which is why the Lord says it's a sign to you that uh, this covenant exists between me and you. Understanding this distinction from the new covenant uh, eyes explains why the Sabbath command does not look exactly the same in both covenants while recognizing that the fundamental nature of the Sabbath remains nonetheless which is expressed in Hebrews chapter 4 as that of entering God's promised Sabbath rest. And so long as that promise remains, that is another way of speaking of heaven, entering God's Sabbath rest, so long as that promise remains, using the language of Hebrews chapter 4, then the weekly Sabbath retains its relevance as a weekly foretaste and a weekly reminder by which we anticipate and reach forward to the greater reality. And so I'm saying that the Sabbath it remains in effect. That's something that I take for granted. Uh, but just to interact there a little bit with the idea of it uh, coming to us as part of the ceremonial law, which is no longer binding. But recognizing that, we need to consider the nature of the Sabbath because this is yet another instructive passage on the nature of the Sabbath. It is, in its essence, a day of holy rest. In this, we express our devotion to God as an act of obedience. We express our imitation of the divine pattern, since God keeps Sabbath. And we express our hope in the life to come, which is the promised Sabbath rest of eternity. Understanding its essence, we're better prepared to see its relevance as a command and a prohibition. Which is how it appears here. First look at the command itself. Do you notice uh, in verse 13 how the Lord stresses its importance? He says, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. 
This is something that was a special point of importance. Surely you will keep this. And this is because God says the Sabbath is a day that belongs to God. He is expressing, as Jesus did later in the Gospels, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is called my Sabbath. Thus, we must be sure to keep it. That is to observe it as God's special day. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath Therefore, for it is holy to you, observe a holy rest by abstaining from work, a holy day of rest, I should say. Uh, Verse 15, he says. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. And again, in verse 16, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout Their generations be certain to keep it, God is saying. Which is, again, to say, be sure that you observe the Sabbath as a day of holy rest. A day of rest and worship. And God, you see, was calling them to observe it always, always to remember to observe it. But in this, he also prohibits. He commands, but he prohibits. He prohibits that they should profane the Sabbath by not keeping it or by working on this of all days, by treating the day as common when it was holy by God's own appointment and example and command. And therefore, God says it is holy to you. If only you will keep it and hallow it and be hallowed by it. So we understand that the Sabbath is a means of grace by which God's people are sanctified In observing it and keeping it. It is a means of worship and communion with God. It is a time to break free from the entanglements of the world. It is a time equally and especially of Christian witness. When God is honored by his people. And they declare their allegiance to him as standing in covenant with the Lord. Yes, but he who profanes the Sabbath. Desecrates not only the Sabbath. But the Lord of the Sabbath himself. Do you think it is a light sin to break the Sabbath, given what the Lord says here? Do you think that God regards it lightly? But let me say something about the perpetuity of the Sabbath, which God states twice in verse 16 and verse 17. He says it's a perpetual covenant. And he says. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. This is a command which stands, which lasts. Now, again, Given the ceremonial law and the fact that we are all agreed as Christian people that that has been abrogated, that has passed away. Some would say that the perpetuity only lasted so long as Israel did. But that with the passing of Israel, there was also the passing of Sabbath. But that misses the point of Sabbath. Its perpetuity finds its basis not in the making of the old covenant, but in the making of the world. When God entered his own Sabbath rest. And God says as much in verse 17. He ties our Sabbath observance not to the making of the old covenant, but to the divine pattern. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. That is exactly what the Lord says in the giving of the fourth commandment. It finds its basis or to use the language of the shorter catechism, the reason annexed to it is that the Lord himself has been observing Sabbath ever since the creation of the world in the seventh day. And so the reason the Sabbath 
command abides forever is because the Sabbath itself abides forever. God never ceases to keep the Sabbath. He is always resting. He is always enjoying Sabbath. And we will either observe it here in time or in eternity. But you cannot do away with Sabbath. Not now that God has entered his and promised the same to his people. And so as God begins the world with Sabbath on the seventh day and makes entering into God's Sabbath rest the goal of man's existence. And continually sets forth this promise and hope by our weekly Sabbaths. There is no way to make the Sabbath go away, nor should there be any desire to do so on the part of God's people. It remains even now a sign between God and his people. In other words, the distinguishing mark of religious devotion. The question is, who are the true worshipers of God? Well, it really isn't difficult to see. Even the world seems to know the answer is. Observe what they do on Sunday. That's why the world is so eager to crowd our Sundays, is to get people out of church. Look to how a man minds his Sabbath. Does he see it as a day that is holy and which is to be holy to him? A day in which God promises to sanctify his people. So we see that they who would be sanctified by the Lord will keep the Sabbath. As I say, even the world is able to recognize that. You know what a man loves. You know what a man worships by how he spends his Sundays. You know how he really feels about the Lord. You know how he really feels about heaven. As J.C. Ryle says, what a hell heaven would be to those who hate their Sabbaths here. And let me also say that this is something just to make the point personal. That I've made as a special point of my ministry ever since I've come here. Although I would admit that there are a few emphases that are easier to maintain in a regular pulpit ministry of the Bible than this. Because it occurs with such frequency in both Testaments. I'm not singling out the Sabbath. It just keeps coming up again and again. And yet I would say, if I were speaking honestly, it's not an emphasis which I feel has really taken hold. Again, if I'm being honest. When Robert Murray McShane preached... Uh, or maybe it was just a writing. I, I can't quite tell, but it's on it's on the table downstairs. Uh, he entitled this sermon or tract, whatever it's called, whatever it was at the time it was delivered. I love the Lord's Day when he did that. Do you notice how he puts it? I love the Lord's Day, he said, as the minister to the people. And do you know why he did that? A, a good friend of mine in seminary pointed this out to me. He said, I wish that I could minister in the days of McShane when people were keeping Sabbath when people love the Sabbath like he did. But he said, you don't understand. The reason he preached that sermon and the reason he entitled it, I love the Sabbath, is because he wanted them to love it like he did, but they didn't. That's why he said that. He wanted them to say, Pastor, you know, I love the Sabbath too. But that wasn't what he found. And I often feel like that. There are times, many times, in fact, pastorally, when I speak to you about your Sabbath observance, and I don't feel that I've gotten very far. It all seems to be a matter of conscience. I ask you whether you're honoring the Sabbath when, or whether you're keeping the Sabbath as a holy day to the Lord. When you go out to lunch on Sunday, when you 
when you do a worldly sort of activity instead of coming to church. I recognize these are not necessarily common practices in this church, but they still happen. And I still believe that this is the distinguishing mark of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that of all denominations, it isn't simply our adherence to Reformed theology, but it is our adherence to the age-old practice of Sabbath-keeping. And again, I, I, I question, I query, whether that conviction has ever really taken hold. But this is something I will keep trying. I will keep declaring to you, though I admit even for me it isn't easy, that I love the Lord's Day. And that I firmly believe this is the, the obvious and the evident teaching of Scripture. The Sabbath is meant to be kept holy by God's people. And that when there's a conflict, it ought to be automatic. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be in church. Period. And in that, your Christian witness, not just as a Christian, but I would add as an Orthodox Presbyterian, would become evident. This is uh, a distinguishing mark of the Christian, as I was saying. And I will continue to pray to God. As Robert Murray McShane prayed, that you will be able to say to me, you know, Pastor, I love the Lord's Day, too. Well, with that word, let me notice, lastly, what uh, happens in verse 18. When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I told myself I would preach shorter sermons today. I appear to be succeeding because this is the shortest point by far. In chapter 24, verse 12, uh, the Lord told Moses, he called him on the mountain, that I'm going to put these tablets in your hand. And that's exactly what he does here. The, the whole episode concludes with the Lord placing the tablets in his hand. But we, we don't just stop there and say, okay, it's come to a close. There's actual significance that we're able to derive from verse 18. Uh, several points, in fact. Uh, one of the things that we could see is that as the tablets are placed in Moses' hand, and I've been doing this throughout Exodus, and I still think it's a valid point. Moses is a type of, of the New Testament minister, and God is entrusting him with the word. He's saying, I want you not only to hold on to these things that I'm giving to you, but I want you to faithfully minister them to the people. And this is the standard by which I will judge you. In the same way, Paul says that the gospel was entrusted to me. And his faithfulness as a minister would be determined by God on the basis of his faithfulness to that message. And we read in Hebrews chapter 3 that Moses was faithful in the house of God. I find that interesting, actually. In the house of God, Christ was faithful over we can't say Moses was over the house of God since he was just a man. But in the house of God, he was faithful as a minister. God placed literally the word of God in his hands. The word of God in his hands. Just as surely as I possess this here. And the question is simply, what then did he do with it? Is he faithful? Does he instruct the people of God, for instance, to keep the Sabbath? But we also notice that the law becomes the special privilege of Israel as a nation. That it was not only entrusted to Moses, but at, he as the representative, it was entrusted to the whole of the nation. And uh, we are reminded again that this was the thing that distinguished Israel from the nations. It was 
her possession of the law. In fact, very soon in, in Romans chapter three, verse two, we're about two sermons away from that text. Uh, we read that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And this is precisely the moment where that occurs. She possessed the law. She was entrusted with it. It was deposited in her care. It was to reside these two tablets as an as an um, as an abiding testimony in the ark, an abiding testimony of God's blessing, but also of his requirements of them. He was continually testifying. This is this is how you will be holy to me. And this is how I reveal my holiness to you. And so we read, again, I've been using that word abide. It was an abiding testimony. How evident that was in the fact that these tablets were made of stone. To symbolize the permanence of the law. And yet, I I don't want to to stress that point over, over much. Because they were twice broken. Once by Moses and again later on in the life of Israel to symbolize the disobedience of the people. But you also see how God wrote it. The law is something that is written metaphorically with the hand of God. In other words, just as he speaks the word in the hearing of the people, so he writes the word for them to read. It is his word. That's the point. And it is their task to keep it. His task to give it, our task to keep it. And so it always is with God's law. Either he will write the law, he will write the law in any case, but either he will do so on tablets of stone or on the heart of man. And therein we find the difference in the two covenants. But the writing of the law is always his work, while our work is always to keep it. But it is on this point, and this is my closing point, that we must especially observe what John says in John chapter 1, verse 17. Where John says, speaking of the contrast between Christ and Moses, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Also, what is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, contrasting the two covenants, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That is the written letter versus the spiritual letter of the spirit. The idea in both passages, whether John chapter 1 or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaks to the insufficiency of the old covenant. uh, Seen in the fact that the law was engraved in stones. The giving of the law in this case was the giving of an outward law without the giving of an inward power. And thus we read of Israel in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Speaking again of Israel, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under, that is, we Jews were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. You also all know what was said in Jeremiah chapter 31, quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. That God would give the law and the new covenant on the hearts of his people just as surely as he would pardon their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And so what we notice is a point that I made recently in a sermon from Romans. 
that the giving of the old covenant, especially as seen through the giving of the law, was a covenant that could not save. As God placed the tablets in Moses' hands, he was giving him, no doubt, a great blessing. And Israel, along with him, a great blessing. But these were not saving blessings. They were blessings that do not save. Again, let me say, it is a great blessing to be given the law. It will bring a man, as we find often in the Gospels, Jesus interacting with the Jews, it will bring a man very near to the kingdom of God, but it is not enough to bring him in. Not in itself. Unless that law, as, as Paul says in Hebrew, or, or, or Galatians chapter 3, unless it leads him to the very wellspring of grace and truth, namely Jesus Christ and him revealed in the flesh and crucified on the cross, if the law does not lead a man there, well then, the man who possesses it will be like Israel here, as we'll soon see. As a wayward and disobedient people who die in the wilderness and never reach their promised rest. Let the wise hearer understand and apply this truth to himself. And let us now stand and sing praise to our Savior uh, in the words of hymn number 267. Please stand. <laughs>